He had the wrong vision of God, but in his pain, something happened. Chapter 19 is what we read today in the book of Job. We'll talk about it. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV. We are going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Today we're in the book of Job. We're going to focus on chapter 19, a very interesting read. Corey is here with Ryan. Corey, what's going on? Well, you know, in today's world, there are many different kinds of houses that you can be living in. But in ancient Israel, there was one most popular type of house, and that's what we're going to look at today. Ryan? Today, I'm talking about Job's three unfortunate counselors, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Okay, very good. Excellent, Ryan. Janice? A speck is my segment today. A speck? I can't <laughs> wait. Anyway, that's good. That's excellent. Let's open up the Bible and let's get your Bible guide out and let's read from God's Word. Job 19, verses 1 through 12. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have reproached me. You are not ashamed that you have wronged me. And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me, know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. If I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me and he counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. Job chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Job 16, Job 17, Job 18, and Job 19. That's what we read these four chapters today. As we continue to go through the Bible, we are making our way through the book of Job. You know, it's easy to gain a wrong vision of God. That's true, especially in today's world of constantly streaming information. We can very easily grab onto a wrong vision of who God is and why things are the way they are. But let's remember that sin is in the world. Sin is the reason for crime. Sin is the reason for evil, and sin is the reason for war. It is not God's fault. It is our fault. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, came to willingly give his life for our sins if we accept him, if we listen and follow his ways. Then we begin to gain a correct understanding of who God is and why he has called us. Well, Job was human. And so he also had a wrong vision of God that was exposed in the moments of his pain. But that wrong vision was made right 
in the end through God mercifully responding to Job. Today, we learn about how Job broke down and articulated what he experienced. And we listen to his outrage about our wonderful Savior, the same God, past, present, and future. He is a good God all the time, every way. Now, let's think about this because as we open up our Bible guides to today's passage and If you don't have one, you can call us or write us. We'll send you one, but also go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. And at BibleDiscoveryTV.com, click on it. It'll take you to a page where you can make donations. And I do want to say thank you very much for your donations. They're very important. And uh, it'll take you to a page where you can download them as they're printed. Wrong vision of God. Father, I pray today as we open up your word and look at it, that you would speak it to our hearts. Help us to see you. Help us to hear you. You know, Lord, there's a lot of people that have visions of God. And they're not right. <laughs> and there's a lot of ways that I, I don't see the Lord correctly. But through your word, which never changes, I see it. The 66 books written by the 40 authors. Help us today to see you in Jesus' wonderful name. And we all said together... Amen and amen. Now, as we focus on this, we need to understand Job chapter 19. I believe this is a wonderful passage. Look carefully at it, the first verse. Then Job answered and Job said, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with your words? These ten times you have reproached me, you are not ashamed that you have wronged me. And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. Now, this is fascinating. Job tells his friends that they are not comforting. Well, everybody can see that. But as Christians, as Christ followers in this world, we are called to be comforters. We're called to comfort people and help them, not to judge them. This is very explicit in the New Testament. God clearly says we're not to judge each other. But what we are to do is point to God. He can change us. Now, we are to understand sin. What sin is, all of that is displayed in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We need to understand that. And we don't pursue sin. We get out of sin because that's our personal choice. And as we get out of sin, the Holy Spirit helps us and people see our lives transform and change. And they might be inspired to do the same. That's sharing your testimony. So we need to understand that. That's what Job said. Now, he also had said some other things. Watch this. Job chapter 19, verses 5 to 6. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me, know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. Oh my goodness, this is exciting. We live in grace now. This is the time we live in. We are alive right now in grace. But in the end, God will judge right and wrong. Beloved, grace is the time we live in. Keep your timing right. Uh, Remember that because a lot of people are mixed up on their timing. And they're saying, God's going to do this and tear you up. Hold on a minute. He will, but not in this time. This is a time of grace where we share 
the good news of Jesus Christ. We bring Isaiah 61 to the people so they can understand who God is and change their life. There will come a time, Revelation 19, there will come a time when the judgment of God is poured out on the nations and it's over. I mean to tell you that the, the people of God now, they're behind him on the white horses and that's where I want to be behind Jesus, not in front of him. Because the spirit of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the Bible, is coming out to judge the nations. I want to tell you, but not yet. Very interesting, isn't it? Get, it, get your timing right. All right. Job chapter 19, verse 7. If I cry out to if I cry out concerning wrongs, I am not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness in my paths. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me and he counts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my tent. This is Job. I want to tell you, God is not punishing Job. It is Satan who's punishing him for loving God. Remember the first part of the book. You see, spiritual warfare is real. And we must be careful what we ascribe to God. You know, I just need to say that so many people are cursing this and cursing that. And, but let's be careful. Let's know our time. Know what we're doing and know how we present it. So keep that in your mind. We've got to go on. This is God is not punishing Job. Remember that. Remember that. He's not punishing Job. It is Satan who's punishing him. I remember when people said to me, you know what? Uh, God is doing this. God is doing that. And I, I, I told them, well, God's not doing that. And they said, well, what do you mean? And I explained that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual principalities. And the relief on them was amazing. And they gained victory. See, beloved, we need to understand that the enemy attacks right now in this time. But God overcomes. The enemy attacks, tries to kill and destroy. But God is the one who overcomes. And so we pray today, Father, in Jesus' name, where people are persecuted, where people are, I mean, there's all kinds of things going on and the children and everything else. But Father, I pray today that you would give them strength, that you would anoint children to become great prophets and preachers, that they would grow in you. They would know that by the voice of these children, we would hear God speak to us. And by the lives of these children, they would demonstrate who you are by an overcomer. In the name of Jesus Christ, and we said all of these things, all of us together, we said, Amen. Hi, Rod Hember here. We go through the Bible every year from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Now you can join us and watch at the time you like by searching Bible Discovery TV on the Roku box or on Amazon Fire TV. Anytime you want to watch us, we're there. Get a hold of it. Watch us anytime you want to.
So today, you and I are going to be talking about ancient houses, specifically the most popular floor plan in ancient Israel. When I say most popular, I mean it really was the 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 archetype for the house that that was used uh, widespread over parts of ancient Israel. But what made me think of looking at the ancient Israelite four-room house today was the fact that Job was not living in his house while the book of Job is, the events in the book of Job uh, were happening. And that's because people, when they went into mourning, would specifically live outside of the home and publicly mourn wearing sackcloth, uh, covering themselves with ashes so that everyone around them knew that they were in mourning and could join in in that mourning if it was appropriate. Now, we're getting off uh, off topic, so I want to bring it back in. We're going to be taking a look at the Israelite four-room house. Take a look. In the field of biblical archaeology, there's an interesting peculiarity that helps define the cities and lands where Israelites lived, a type of house. From the 12th to the 6th centuries BC, called the Iron Age, there was a common floor plan used in most homes throughout the land. Biblically, this represents the time period of the late judges through the entire period of the kings until the Babylonian destruction of 586 BC. The type of house is called the four-room house because of its layout. It had three long rooms and one broad room that stretched across the front or back of the house. The three long rooms could be divided by walls or by columns, and any of the rooms could be subdivided into smaller spaces. Many researchers think that the middle room was often open to the sky to act as a type of courtyard, and the houses could also have a second floor and a flat roof that could act as a sort of ancient balcony or outdoor living space. Interestingly, this basic four-room design can also be seen reflected in some monumental buildings, like forts, administrative and public buildings, and likely because of its common use as a home in life, the design can also be seen mirrored in some tombs. There are many theories trying to explain where the four-room house could have come from, like borrowing from Canaanite architecture, growth out of nomadic tent life, or a novel invention of the early Israelites. Due to its rather sudden appearance, and that it dominates all of the areas the Bible ascribes to Israel, including east of the Jordan, the land of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, it seems most likely that the house plan was an Israelite invention. It's been argued by researchers that it must have been developed specifically for function. The home had to be a place for food processing, crafting daily use articles, storage, and a place to sleep for both people and animals. With the addition of a second floor and roof, there could be dedicated spaces for eating and resting. But the purpose had to be more than function, because the floor plan also dominated homes with different needs within the walled cities of Israel. This has caused researchers to look for something else that is uniquely Israelite mainly the Law of Moses. It's been noted that a unique feature of the four-room house is its potential privacy. One central room can access all other rooms in the house rather than having to walk through several rooms to get to your destination. This is significant because it would have helped to uphold the purity laws in the Bible. When a member of the household became ceremonially unclean, they could spend their time at home without interfering with the daily flow of life, without people having to pass through their space and also risk becoming ceremonially unclean. 
It has also been noted that having homes that facilitated this would have actually helped pass the laws on to the next generation. It was quite literally built into the fabric of their society. You know, it's, it's widely believed that one of the reasons why the Israelite four-room home became uh, the Israelite home, the archetypal one, the, the floor plan that everyone used, was largely due to the religious beliefs of the Israelites. It allowed for privacy when someone would have been ritually unclean. This is just something that scholars have noticed when they've been studying the floor plan of it. And this concept of uh, ritual purity and impurity is something that we are going to be speaking of on Monday's program. So I hope that you join me next Monday. Well, that's gonna be good. I love that <laughs> one. Talk about the mikvahs and everything else. That's excellent. Okay, Corey, thank you. Ryan. All right, well, if you recall, in yesterday's program, we studied the life of the righteous man, Job. So today, in contrast, we take a look at Job's so-called friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Their understanding of theology was a little bit mixed up. Take a look. When the shocking news reaches them that their friend Job, a man once extraordinarily blessed of God, has now lost everything, they make an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. Each comes from his own land, but when they arrive, they do not recognize Job. So they sit in silence and mourn with him an entire week, which was the only wise thing they did. Indeed, Eliphaz is the first to speak. He hailed from the land of Teman, which was probably located in Jordan. Though it was a region famed for wisdom, Eliphaz was certainly not wise. He accuses Job of being sinful, because in my experience, he says, only those who sow evil reap it back. Next to speak is Bildad, who also believes there must be sin in Job's life. Regarding Job's children, he claims, if your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. Perhaps this hurt Job most, since Job chapter 1 verses 4 to 5 indicates that he was in fact concerned for his children. As one Bible commentator observes, it appears Job's children were partiers, they're rich kids who know how to have a good time, always including their fun-loving sisters. Job is concerned about their behavior, fearing that amid their good times, they might be blaspheming God. So after every party, he arises in the morning and prepares a sacrifice of atonement for each child. This, he hopes, will cover the transgressions they may have committed the previous night. Last to speak is Zophar, who like Eliphaz and Bildad is more of an accuser than a comforter. In fact, Zophar was perhaps the most insensitive of all. Is a person proved innocent just by talking a lot, Zophar demanded? Listen, God is doubtless punishing you far less than you deserve. Fortunately, Job was wiser than them all. I have heard many such things, he replies. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words of wind have an end? Author Barbara Brown Taylor echoes Job's sentiments. In their ministerial anxiety, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are like flies buzzing around him on his dung heap. If they would just shut up, they are in his way. They are in God's way. They are trying to insert themselves between the silence of God and the one for whom the silence is intended. Indeed, in the end, God restores righteous Job, but rebukes the three men for misrepresenting him with all of their opinionated blather and phony righteousness. In an ironic twist, these men came to save Job but it would be Job that would save them. For their sins, God commands the three men to make sacrifice unto him 
and to have Job pray for them. For I will accept Job, God says, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. You know, this story brings to my mind a key verse, and it comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 15 and 16. And it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Although Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar started the right way when they simply sat with Job in silence and mourned with him, they unfortunately didn't finish well. Even though these three men had committed their lives to God, I do believe that they were manipulated by the evil one and used as his instruments to attempt to get Job to curse God and die. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew translated as Satan here literally means the accuser. These three men were not Job's comforters, but instead his accusers. And one major takeaway from this is to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Because when we do, we open ourselves up to the evil one. The last thing that we want to do is, as believers is be used as a tool of Satan. Well, I don't think that we as Christians can be possessed by evil spirits. We definitely can be influenced by them if we allow them to, even inadvertently. In fact, we can be influenced by them. And I've noticed myself, this is just me. My personal experience is when I begin to talk, if somebody is uh, hurt by me or upset or mad at me or I've done something wrong and they come at me, uh, it's easy for me to, you know, charge back and to say this, 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 this. But the truth is that, wait a minute, um, I don't think I should talk because if I talk, that's when Satan takes over and I defend myself mm -hmm. and I become defensive. And so a lot of times what I try to do is I back off. I pull back and I say, wait a minute, I need to understand. Now there comes a proper time to confront what you're dealing with and all of that. But it, it is very interesting. It yeah. truly is. And, and I think also from a slightly different perspective, if you are the person who's experiencing the suffering, um, that makes people around you really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And we see that with Job's yeah. friends. Mm -hmm. And they're uncomfortable because they don't know why he's suffering. And they want to know why, because they want it to make sense so that they also can avoid the suffering. Or maybe, maybe they're thinking, if they can explain it, then it's not going to be so hard for you to go through. And so, you know, if you've ever experienced any form of personal loss, you know, there'll be people who are trying to comfort you and they'll say stuff that really hurts. It makes it worse. It's not helping at all. And that's coming from a place of discomfort with the idea of what you're going through. And we see that with Job as well. So that's something that from my own personal experience, I've been made aware of uh, when I am uncomfortable with someone else's suffering, I need to learn how to live with that discomfort so that I don't hurt them more. And, and always turning to God yeah. and bringing them to God and giving them comfort in that way. And that's almost you, what the Bible's talking about, weeping with those who weep. Exactly. That's, it's kind of, you know, and it is uncomfortable, yeah. but sometimes you have to do that and just cry with them, yeah. right? And that's more of yeah. a help than anything. Yeah. And it's true so. what you say with a lot of times, and I know that I've done it myself, mm -hmm. um, the words that I think would bring comfort in that moment, I only would find out 
you know, weeks later, whatever, that that would actually be something that made that situation worse, yes. mm-hmm. which hurts you even more because you can't go back exactly. and extract that. The words are already there. They're, you've already dropped them in, you know, and I know that we've all done that. And the same with... Um, you know, Job hears from his friends, and the last one before chapter 19 is Bildad, who talks to Job about how the wicked are punished. This isn't what Job needed to hear. It wasn't what Job needed to hear, but here again, we have Bildad. They're, they're just trying to figure this out. And Job answered and said, how long will you torment my soul? Job 19 verse 1 says, listen, and listen to this words, and break me in pieces with words. These were his friends. They were hurting, like you said, Corey. They they were trying to figure all of this out. He says these 10 times, you have reproached me. You're not ashamed that you have wronged me. And then he goes on to say, if it, indeed I have erred, my error re- remains with me. And then he talks about how that, that God sees, God knows, and that if God decides to punish him, well, then that's where it's going to lay. Why do you have to punish me on top of it? And that's why I called this the speck. Have you ever got something in your eye and it really, really drives you crazy? And, you know, my eyesight is growing dimmer by the day. And now if I move my glasses to try to see what's in my eye, I can't even see what's in my eye. It reminded me what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1 to 5 about not judging If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is what Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first Remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. As Corey was encouraging us here, sometimes we are in uncomfortable positions and we want to be able to solve somebody else's problem or to understand what it is. But a lot of times what we need to do is sit in reflective time with God and through his word and through talking with God and listening, listening to him and to his spirit, we can learn what we need to learn and help as the Holy Spirit teaches us. He is our teacher and he is our guide. Let's access that in our lives. Today we pray, and at the end of the program, we like to pray, God, I need you. I need you today. Help me to know that you are my Lord. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. And by the way, you can join us at 3.30 to 4.30, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 
at YouTube and Facebook and also Bible Discovery TV where we have a live prayer meeting. Pray for you. Join us, won't you? I'll look for you.